0: Welcome back. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, ladies and gentlemen, to another installment of our read and dive into Sean McMeekin's Stalin's War, a, a new history of World War II. Uh, we're continuing on, on to chapter two, uh, covering the, the Molotov Ribbentrop Pact. Uh, we'll be starting with Huge and Hateful. But before I get started, today I am joined by Yellow Lantern 19. How are you, sir?
1: I'm doing great this morning. So, um, this is uh this book was um when I wrote my substack on the best books to understanding the time period of the Russian Revolution and so- early Soviet rule this was the last book to recommend as it's a continuation of Sean McMeekin's previously just as good and shorter book The Russian Revolution a New History because if you really want to get the sense of what um what how just trash world or clown world-ish, the this early Soviet regime was, even under Stalin and all the events that led up to really our modern world order where morals and policy come from, I cannot recommend this book enough.
0: Well, we're, we're here to dive through it and we're, we're going to get started. So for those unfamiliar, we're going to do this similar to a, a friend of mine, Pete Quinones, where we're just going to read through. My lovely guest is going to interrupt me anytime to to bring up a point or a fascinating issue of history, and we're going to try and get through Chapter 2, Section 1 with our our limited time this morning when we record, but we're going to get through it. So huge and hateful is Chapter 2, and um, just in time to to get YouTube uh, really all almonds activated, Um, Chapter 2, Section 1, which is number 5, is called Courting Hitler, so we'll get started. It was no accident that Stalin distanced himself from collective security in March 1939, just as Britain got serious about it. The closer Western powers and Hitler drew toward war over Poland, the harder it would be for Stalin to pretend that bringing about such a conflict was not his most cherished foreign policy objective. Litvinov's collective security chatter had served a diplomatic purpose, but only as long as Stalin had not pledged to the Soviets to intervene in real armed conflict against Hitler. As Britain would surely now demand that he do and to help Poland, one of Russia's traditional enemies and a serious Soviet military opponent as recently as 1920. A hint of the true face of Soviet foreign policy was provided immediately after Prime Minister Chamberlain proclaimed his fateful guarantee of Polish independence in the House of Commons March 31st, 1939. Not, that is, of Poland's territorial integrity, as neighbors with designs on Polish territory had noticed. Chamberlain's statement has received opprobrium uh, over the years, much of it deserved. Hitler read the loose guarantee of Polish independence as a green light for adjusting Poland's borders, even as Poland's foreign minister, Joseph Beck, took Chamberlain's declaration as a British blank check, a solemn vow to intervene militarily if Germany threatened Poland's independence. Both interpretations suffered from wishful thinking, enabled by Chamberlain's poor choice of words. The upshot was the simultaneous encouragement of German diplomatic bullying and stiffening of Polish resistance to it, which ratcheted up the odds of war.
1: Hmm, saber raveling and trying to stir up feelings of with a country that has irredentist feeling towards its neighbor. What could possibly go wrong? I'm one mad.
0: It's uh, it's the trend that keeps on giving, even even a, almost a century later.
1: There's sleepwalking into war, and then there's driving at high speeds towards war. And I think you could probably imagine which phase of diplomatic rhetoric we are in now.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's for certain. In fairness to Chamberlain, there were good reasons for the subtle wording. To have guaranteed the entire Polish territory, as Chamberlain's critics would have often insisted he should have done, would have been to recognize the opportunistic Polish Caesar of Teschen from the Czechs two days after Munich, an act of territorial larceny that, like Hungary's seizure of southern Slovakia, had played a role in the destruction of Czechoslovakia that Hitler had just completed. Poland, as Chamberlain knew, had signed a non-aggression pact with Nazi Germany in January 1934 as a hedge against Soviet aggression. Foreign Minister Beck had visited the Führer's mountain retreat at Berchtesgaden as recently as January 5th, 1939, where Hitler had proposed a deal to compensate Warsaw with more territory at Czech's expense, carpatho ruthenia in today's Ukraine. Hmm. In exchange for Poland, turning over Danzig and Polish, in the Polish corridor to Germany. Beck, though happy to pocket Teschen in the wake of Munich, was now having second thoughts, and he refused. However alarming, uh, however alarming, Hitler's recent behavior had been from his bullying of Chamberlain at Munich to the brutal, state-enabled Kristallnacht Pogrom against Jews and Jewish-owned businesses carried out across Germany on November 9th through 10th, 1938, to the occupation of Prague, March 15th, Poland was not blameless in the Czechoslovakian tragedy. Personally affronted as he was by Hitler's move into Prague, Chamberlain had had to consider the opinion in the cabinet and the commons. The liberal and labor opposition, however wary of Hitler and Nazism, were reluctant to be drawn into war against Germany by a Tory government. The Tories in Chamberlain's cabinet, including Foreign Secretary Viscount Halifax, were no less leery. An unconditional guarantee of Poland's integrity would have pleased the gung-ho Winston Churchill, but his belligerent anti-Hitler stance was still a minority position in the party, as had been made clear by Churchill's exclusion from the last two Tory cabinets, including Chamberlain's. Moreover, a commitment to defend Poland at all costs would would, like an invitation for Churchill to join the cabinet, have been understood by Hitler as a virtual commitment to fight. For this reason, Chamberlain could not have issued one without risking the collapse of his government.
1: This kind of reminds me of, you know, to draw a personal, uh, lots of people were calling for the death or assassination of Vladimir Putin at the start of the second Donbass war. But as we shown here, you know, what people don't realize is that you're dealing with the moderate figure or the person who's willing to, you know, keep back all the more Hawkish as well as jingoistic elements of their government. So, if they go, you get somebody who is who's willing to send in the tanks and start a war. Just something to think about when you you know you read about the lead up to both world wars and realize only the few things had gone this way. What if instead of a war, this could have been a truncated treaty or peace agreement? You get a lot this, throughout this book of many opportunities to have what would be called World War II headed to a different direction, as we shall see further on in these chapters.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I yeah, thank you for reminding me of um, everyone's favorite sort of homosexual from the Carolinas that happens (laughs) to be a senator, Lindsey Graham, calling for the assassination of, of Putin. And it makes you think, well... And these in these rare moments, thank God, I guess that um, we don't have a, a million Lindsey Grams running things. Um, although the people in there are, are certainly just as bad in their own right. But we'll, mm-hmm. here, here's our map of Europe 1936 to 1939. You have Teschen um, annexed by the Poles in 38. Uh, we have Czechoslovakia here. Um, we have Danzig or Gdańsk uh Konigsberg, which will eventually not really be very German by the end of this war. And um You here, could here also
1: you can also see uh Lviv, Galicia and others elements which will not longer be Polish as well by the end of this war.
0: Uh, very true. Very, very true. Um you know for those who've been following the news with the Ukrainian war over the last uh you know year and a half now uh, this is a major city in which the Americans and NATO allies have been dropping off supplies, in uh, you know trainers, instructors, advisors, um, and the, this is part of the the territory of Ukraine and in present day. We'll carry on here. Seeking political and diplomatic cover, Chamberlain had tried to enlist not only French but also Soviet support for a statement guaranteeing Polish independence. Despite his own misgivings about Stalin, Chamberlain had arranged a meeting with Ivan Maisky, the Soviet ambassador to London, in, hope, in the hope of extracting a Soviet endorsement. Carefully, Maisky had told Chamberlain that he might say on his own authority that the Soviet Union appreciated the principles embodied in a statement regarding Poland, so long as he did not quote Maisky, Litvinov or Stalin, as having done so on the record. But even this qualified endorsement of Chamberlain's Polish guarantee was rescinded when Litvinov informed the British ambassador to Moscow, Sir William Seeds, on April 1st, 1939, that Mysky had been misunderstood and that Chamberlain's statement on Poland was not at all appreciated. Britain, Litvinov told Seeds, could pursue its own policy, the Soviet government would stand aside. As to underscore Moscow's distance from the Western powers over Poland, three days later, the Soviet news agency TASS emphatically denied a French news report that the Soviet Union had undertaken or promised to undertake a supply to supply Poland in the event of war with war materials and to deny its raw materials market to Germany. Uh, Truth was that the Soviet Union had given no such promise or assumed no such obligation, so much for the supposed Soviet commitment to collective security. Uh, Reminds me about, uh, you know, the the classic uh, issue of the Alliance Trap. Correct. We we, we want promises. We want you to do this. Mm -hmm. And that drags people into war.
1: Yes. If only we listened to one of our early founding fathers about entangling alliances.
0: Oh, very much so. If only we did. Um, But alas, here we are. Still, despite his own deep-seated hostility toward Poland for diplomatic reasons, Stalin could not cast off all disguise. On April 17, 1939, he authorized Litvinov to discuss the possibility of a mutual assistance pact with Britain and France. Significantly, however, Litvinov instructed Meisky to leave the initiative to British and the French. In a sign of bad faith, which he had viewed in the Western powers, Stalin, that very same day, authorized his ambassador in Berlin A.F. Merakalov, to visit the German foreign ministry in order to reassure the German state security, Richard von Weissacker, that Stalin's foreign policy was in no way anti-German. Weissacker assured Merakalov that there was no reason why Russia should not live with us on a, for- on no- a normal footing, and from normal, our relations might become better and better." End quote. Uh, for those who've been watching this series, um, you notice in the first chapter we covered Soviet foreign policy and the duplicitous nature of it. And I, I remember very famously the the monk debates that happened uh, over a year ago. And, you know, you had Michael McFaul and John Mearsheimer doing a little cross-examination. And Michael McFall's like, of course we lie. Everybody lies. <laughs> um, and here's a really good example of uh, just the need to be duplicitous, but also the need to pursue policy that may be only temporary or fleeting in your own advantage.
1: Real politic, huh? Eh? Yeah. It's, that's what we have, and this is something I feel like has been notably absent in recent years as well.
0: It certainly is, and um, I, I feel like, again, when you, when you read this and you're like, man, these guys are a bunch of, like, backstabbing dicks. Well, they are, but Every Western government also does the same. Um, although uh, how close we were, how close we are to World War III, um, th- this this amphibious creature just just doesn't know.
1: Neither does this guardian of Section Two Eight One Four.
0: For all that, Neville Chamberlain has been abused for naivete in his reading of Hitler. It is worth noting here that the British Prime Minister was perfectly justified in his wariness of Stalin. In Soviet Russia, Chamberlain wrote his sister on March twenty-six was both hated and respected by many of the smaller states, notably by Poland, Romania, and Finland. After the Russians disowned his March 31st statement on Poland, the Prime Minister concluded with justification that the Soviet Union did not have the same aims and objects as we have or any sympathy with democracy as such. She is afraid of Germany and Japan and would be delighted to see other people fight them. Uh, very prescient from Neville Chamberlain. Hmm. <clears throat> The beleaguered Édouard Dalvedier government in Paris received no better treatment in Moscow. France's military attaché in the city, Colonel Auguste antoine Palas, had been trying to cultivate contacts in the Soviet high command for two years. Although France had been a theoretical Soviet ally since 1935, Palas was not even allowed to attend Red Army maneuvers. As a disgruntled colonel, Uh, As the disgruntled Colonel Palas reported in Paris, Stalin's spy chief Lavarenze Beria had placed him under a round-the-clock NKVD surveillance in June and July 1938 because, to furnish intelligence requested in Paris as the Czechoslovakia crisis was breaking, he had been asking too many questions about the Soviet military posture. On April 13, 1939, as the showdown over Poland was heating up, Palas visited the Soviet Defense Ministry to request an urgent audience. He was rebuffed without explanation. After being rebuked by his superiors for failing to furnish decent intelligence in the Red Army, Palas reminded the French high command in a plaintiff report filed on April 19th that, I assumed my post here in an atmosphere of revolutionary terror, a terror that has not ceased today, and which renders it all but impossible to enter genuine relations with Soviet military personalities, end quote. Palas added dryly that, quote, relations between our two countries have not been, in general, of a nature tending to facilitate my mission.
1: Translation. These guys are all a bunch of backstabbing duplicitous liars. And I feel like if we get too closely attached, they could easily screw over our country. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's I think he mentioned earlier the reason that theoretically aligned, he says, is because France had their own sort of popular front government that was, you know, following that that internationalist creed of the no enemies to the left. But and they had early on provided some support. I think earlier pointed to these Spanish Republicans, but a year later, you know, when they see saw how the world was going and unpopularity at home, they withdrew and uh, even closed the border with the um, Spanish Republic as it was being surrounded. And the nationalists continued to gain more and more territory. So I think it's something to think about. And you know, that's kind of like when the Soviet Union also started to support the. Uh, the republicans a lot more until they realized the war was a lost cause as well
0: yeah and i mean sean mcmeekins also talked about french czarist relations and sort of the the tenseness there right before the outbreak of world war one that you had a only by the grace of a wife killing a reporter that you didn't have like a far leftist anti-monarchist as the foreign minister to to moscow and and then, of course, when the French and, and, the, and the czarist government had met, you know, you had that awkward political tension of dealing with like rabid revolutionary leftists. And then, of course, a, a monarchy. So you had, of course, the, the Russian anthem play right alongside the Marseillaise, And you're just um, the, the, the tensions between the two, even pre-revolution uh, and post-revolution was still awkward. But yes. Although Stalin's government had been dropping lumps of coal into British and French laps all winter, the first sign of genuine revolution in Soviet foreign policy came on April 27, 1939, when Litvinov and Masky were summoned to Moscow for consultation. A dramatic scene was enacted in the Kremlin as Litvinov came in for vicious abuse at the hands of Vyshilov M. Uh, Skryabin, a Bolshevik name, Molotov, meaning hammer, and the chairman of the Council of the People's Commissars. The hammer to Stalin's steel during the Great Terror years, Molotov had worked closely with Vodst, drawing up purge lists and death quotas. They cons- uh, co-signed 3,161 executions on a single day, November 12, 1938. The atmosphere, MySky later recalled, was as tense as it could get. Molotov became violent, colliding with Litvinov incessantly, accusing him of every kind of mortal sin. Stalin puffed up his pipe during Molotov's tirade, making it clear to Meiski that Molotov, an old Bolshevik and unsentimental foreign policy opportunist, was now in favor. Next week... Go ahead.
1: (laughs) I just say, it's like, speaking, it's like, yes, you're... Your diplomatic maneuvers have led you to coal posting, and we are physically removing you for your terrible <laughs> statements. So now, as you can see, we're now going to be courting the other, other power that also doesn't like Poland. And due to the bungling of the um, tensions between, we will see that. Um, I should reiterate that um, when you hear non-aggression pact, it doesn't mean that it's a treaty. What it means is that you look at these kind of like, okay, we're gonna have a fight sometime in the future, but for now, let's hold off on it. You know, it's like a tournament bracket. It's like we're not fighting. You know, if we get past this round, we'll fight on this bracket. But for now, we'll be we're gonna deal with our own troubles, and then we will rearrange when that time comes. This is something I think Thomas Seven 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 has also mentioned in his series in the lead up to. You know his his focus on like Soviet and German history at this point.
0: Yeah, uh, not non-aggression pacts. Like unless you're doing active military maneuvers and sharing intelligence with one another, uh, a non-aggression pact is. Listen, uh, we're probably going to throw down at some point in history. Um, just not right now. We, we we need time to to prepare. Let's see here. Next week, the hammer came down. On the night of May 3rd, 1939, the Soviet foreign ministry on uh, on Kuzenski most uh, was surrounded by NKVD troops in a blunt coup that saw Litvinov and his top appointees physically removed from all premises, along with virtually all Jewish employees. As Molotov recalled, Stalin had ordered him to purge the foreign ministry of Jews. Not only was Stalin jettisoning Litvinov's policy of anti-Hitler collective security, but he was also extending an anti-Semitic olive branch to the Nazis by purging Jews from the Soviet foreign policy establishment and turning it over to a Gentile, Mol- Molotov. Stalin was courting Hitler. Um, I don't know how much of that I would... I don't know if it's just a, a courting Hitler because he's he's purging the Jews out of the Soviet Foreign Ministry, um, as Stalin had been kind of quick to also do purges of the the you know the Soviet you know common turn after Lenin. I mean Lenin's original was more uh, Jewish than after Stalin had came in, and many purges came down. I feel like a lot of these purges just came on the basis of uh, I can't trust you. Uh, of course, not to. Of course, you have uh, so 200 years together and the history of you know Jewish individuals in Russia versus uh non Jews in Russia. You know, I I don't know if this is just a blatantly courting Hitler. Um, let, me, let me check the footnote here. Um, if it'll go there real quick. Uh, cited in Felix Chuev, Molotov remembers inside Kremlin politics. Albert Reese 192, interview conducted uh, 1971. Maybe it was, I'd, I'd have to read the interview, but um.
1: There's also the factor that much of the Soviet operations and their intelligent branches were basically like ethnic mafias and gangsterisms. Like, there would be one time, there would be one ethnic group controlling the NKVD or this. Sometimes it would be Georgians or the people from the Armenians. It could be some Ukrainians as well. I mean, this is kind of as that even after World War Two, for example, Ukrainian... Um, Ukrainian diaspora had a really outsized influence on Soviet policies. At prior, you know, when Nikita Khrushchev came into office, it was a. Ma- it's just like a matter of which ethnic group is favored and in charge of the Soviet apparatuses. It, and, and they rotated constantly. You know, you had you know sometimes it would be you know it would be Pale of Settlement, a former Pale of Settlement Jews. Sometimes it would be yeah the Caucasus. Sometimes it could even be even some from like Central Asia that had outsized influence, especially when it came to relations of managing the heads of the communist parties within the Soviet republics.
0: Yeah, I I mean, it's also important to consider that ethnic point, because any time that we see in Soviet foreign policy, uh, you know, if there is a, a group or a region that is not particularly ethnically Russian or not uh, particularly Slavic, I, I think of during the Soviet, you know, years of um, Kazakhstan, you know, that um, during the Soviet Union, you had moved millions of uh, ethnic Slavs and Russians into Kazakhstan. And since the fall of the Soviet Union, the the Russian population there is virtually turned into a minority as native Kazakhs and the various groups that are in that country have become the majority just by uh, you know the there's no need for russians to be there either due to the the collapse of the industry or of course uh, anti-russian rhetoric and what happened in december back in i want to say 86 or 84 right before the Mm -hmm. soviet union came down which had really fostered a, a more kazakh centered uh identity but again yeah i mean like the the ethnic aspect of this uh can't be uh, reiterated enough that even J. Otto Pohl, who's written about uh, the German, um, you know, expulsion and the loss of life and purging from the Russian territories, um, that would well Soviet territories from what used to be large ethnic German enclaves, you know, he has this whole bit called bio-Stalinism that you know Stalin was more likely to facilitate the new Soviet man and focus on the, the ethnic aspect of it. And that included just as much of um, limiting, you know, access of, of Jews into the Soviet government.
1: Yes. It's a very good book. Also year of the great silence talking about specifically the German diaspora in the Soviet and how it was treated and not very well. Of course it was, you know, there were purges, they were exiled. And they, there was a group that even lives today that was exiled to Kazakhstan.
0: Yes, absolutely. So it's very important to keep these things in mind. But all righty, we'll continue here. Hitler got the message. On May 5th, uh, Hitler's propaganda chief, Joseph Goebbels, in issued instructions to Nazi journalists should suspend their sharp attacks on the Soviet Union until they received new instructions. Addressing his army commanders on May 23rd, Hitler had hinted at a possible deal with Stalin, but warned that economic relations with Russia would only be possible once political relations had improved. Ideally, Hitler wanted an improvement in political relations without having to give away anything in return, such as a renunciation of the anti-comintern pact with Italy and Japan. Yet, as the German ambassador in Moscow, Schulenberg, informed uh, State Secretary Weissacker on May 22, Molotov had already made clear to him that merely reopening trade talks was not a sufficient political gesture, and he wanted a thorough-going offer of political nature from us.
1: This is probably an interesting look to, like, you know, we've probably seen even, like, in recent times, people, you know, the movement, for example, the current conflict going on in Gaza, people are, like, some I've seen some people say, oh, see, look at that. They're, they're anti-Israel. They're clearly our friends. We got to join up with them. And I say to them, no, the enemy of my enemy is still my enemy, guys. And we see, you know, the, even the Nazi government saying like, oh, wow, now he's, he's getting wise to our ethnic and racial policies. They're still saying, no, we still don't know if, you know, the Soviet Union is going to be friendly towards us. There's the, you know it's it, again it's that this this ability to not immediately act on emotions and um you know look at the full picture of what is going on diplomatically as well as in geostrategic interest this again this is lost on many people in the modern
0: world yeah and it, it is important to you know consider what we're uh Usually, I I, I like I, I saw a tweet, and I don't remember who said, it. you know, the enemy of my enemy is probably just another enemy. And uh, I feel like that's important to, to consider, you know, like, mm-hmm. uh, I'd like to focus on my own country's security first, sir. Yeah. Uh, right,
1: and it, it was something you mentioned on the last Digital Archipelago about, you were talking like, sometimes if you see two people in a fight, you know, don't intervene or try to make some, because then they could easily turn on you.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean the the last thing that you want to do is like break up a bar fight and then both guys just wanna turn in and, and knock your teeth out. But we'll continue on. Stalin was careful not to seem too eager. Meeting Hitler halfway, Molotov declared himself willing to open talks so long as they appear to be purely economic and thus should be conducted by Stalin's trade commissar, the Armenian old Bolshevik. Anastas uh, Mikoyan, rather than political, which would have been his own responsibility. And this way, Molotov could re- preserve plausible deniability that he was dealing with Hitler and maintain flexibility vis a vis Britain and France. Far from welcoming Molotov's hot potato, Mikoyan was even cooler to the Germans, laying down strict conditions before he would open up state level trade negotiations. These conditions he informed Stalin on June 19, 1939, that the Germans had yet to satisfy. German-Soviet trade relations were no, were no mere red herring. In economic terms, both countries needed each other and the stakes were high. Stalin's armament drive had simu- stimulated voracious demand for machine tools and engineering know-how, areas in which German firms excelled. Hitler's own armaments effort had ratcheted up German demand for oil, manganese, cotton, and grain, all of which the Soviet produced in abundance. And they still do. Uh, Rubber stocks are perilously low in Germany, sufficient for only two to three months in case of war. Although Russia did not produce rubber, it had ready access to Asian supplies, which might prove critical in the case of a British blockade of Germany. It was the same story with steel and nickel. If supplies of iron ore from one of the Galivar mines of Sweden and the um, Petsamo nickel combines in Finland were disrupted across the Baltic, German mass production of panzers and warplanes would be impossible. Little wonder the German Office for Economic Development concluded that, quote, making our greater economic sphere blockade-proof can only be achieved through close economic cooperation with Russia, end quote. Mikuyan and Molotov were playing hard to get. Behind the scenes, though, Stalin was moving toward a genuine political realignment with Berlin. Molotov instructed his diplomats to drop hints that Stalin might be interested in territorial changes after all. Thus, on June 15th, Georgie. Astakov, the Soviet charge d'affaires in Berlin, mooted a Polish partition to the Bulgarian minister in Berlin, um, Parvan Dragunov, who was known to be friendly with the Germans. On several occasions that June, Soviet diplomats asked their British and French counterparts about their attitude towards Soviet encroachment into the three Baltic states, Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, the idea being that sending the Red Army might help deter Hitlerian aggression. On June 2nd Molotov handed the British and French ambassadors a draft agreement under which the Soviets might provide mutual assistance to smaller European states under the threat of aggression by a European power. To deter Stalin on excuse me on June 7th, Latvia and Estonia signed non-aggression treaties with Germany, joining Lithuania, which had signed one back in March of that year. On three separate occasions that June, Soviet officials in, Ber- in the Berlin embassy broached the subject of Bessarabia, the area of coastal Romania abutting the Danube Delta that had belonged to Tsarist Russia with German diplomats. The hint was not subtle. Stalin was in the market for territory.
1: I want to, if for the people who do not know Bessarabia, this is modern-day the area of what we call Moldova, which um, changed hands several times. It was the subject of one of the russo-ottoman wars that was fought over in the 1870s and uh as you as people would know stalin had his eyes on securing that area because of its proximity to the Dniester river which provides a very you know it's an alternate current that flows next to the Danube, which empties into the black sea so you're looking you know we have you know it's not looking good for eastern europe because you have two comparable uh states with with a mobilized military or arming up that have irredentist claims then i think you know you're seeing both sides are trying to say oh no they're you know stalin's coming from us better better make our pacts with with germany or the other way around it's again we're, we're sliding into a war and you know it's important that people forget you know it, this wasn't something that you know solely hitler was interested in, in acquiring territory Stalin was and if we saw Poland, Hungary, irredentism was a viable political force for many countries, even today I should say that there's there's still a lot of feelings that territory that belongs to you is under administration by another state.
0: Yeah. And I mean it, this is the again this is the real politique for smaller countries. This is that if someone senses the desire to seize territory or to act in aggression or to act in their larger uh, hegemonic interest, you're going to pursue another uh, hegemon to, to help seek defense. This is, this is the basics of defensive realism as outlined by in- individuals like Stephen Waltz. Still, he was in no rush. As summer wore on, it became clear that Germany's ardor for a deal was much stronger than Russia's. Every day brought a possible armed clash with Poland closer for Hitler, and dry summer weather could not last forever. The Wehrmacht's ideal launch date was August 26th. Hitler's Polish war plans, along with his acute economic vulnerability, were well known to Stalin, who had a highly placed mole in the German embassy in Warsaw. Meanwhile, although the battle ranging at Khalkhin Gol kept Soviet forces tied down all summer, the dramatic failure of Japan to break through on July 23rd erased the strategic pressure on Moscow. The longer the diplomatic picture in Europe was unclear, the greater leverage Stalin enjoyed over Hitler. Um, yeah, cloud, clouds of war will help you greatly in this mm-hmm. instance.
1: And uh, for those who don't know, the battle of was Gol was, a, was the... Um, so, so the Japanese were, in addition to claiming territory over its uh, Suzerary state of Manchuria, clashed with uh, Mongolia and the Soviet Union. You know, Mongolia itself at this point was a satellite state of the Soviet Union, and they had clashed. And this would lead to Japan signing its own non-aggression treaty with the Soviet Union's, which is why that there was no action taken. When the Pacific War heated up, until after the atomic bombs were dropped, which resulted in the Soviets declaring war on Japan and seizing the Kuril Islands, which they still, which the Russians still hold to this day.
0: Yeah, but we'll uh, we'll continue on. Mm-hmm. Emboldened by Zhukov's stand in Manchuria, Stalin authorized a tentative approach to the Germans in Berlin. On July 26, Astakov, the Soviet charge d'affaires, met with the German legation counselor and trade uh, expert Karl Schneur at a Berlin restaurant. Astakov had become animated as he assailed German forward policy in the Baltic states, Finland, and Romania, which left the Soviet government with the feeling of being under threat. As Schoenur reported, the Russian had shown especially strong interest in the Romanian question. Astakov also asked if Germany had designs on the Galician and Ukrainian parts of Poland. Shunur assured Astakov that Germany had no policy on the Ukrainian question, which threatened Soviet interests. Shunur proposed a three-stage plan, a new commercial treaty followed by the normalization and improvement of political relations, and then a Rapallo-style alliance treaty. Astakov promised that he would report this to Moscow. The Germans interpreted Astakov's remarks as an invitation. With Stalin expecting to receive a British-French delegation in August, the clock was ticking. The stakes were high enough that Hitler's trusted Nazi foreign minister, the former Champagne salesman Joachim von Ribbentrop, stepped in to speed things along. If Stalin negotiated with Hitler in good faith, Ribbentrop told uh, Astakov over dinner on August 2nd, there was no problem from the Baltic to the Black Sea that could not be solved between the two of us. Unlike the democratic powers, Ribbentrop boasted Nazi Germany did not need to pay heed to the facilitating public opinion and could settle foreign affairs on solid ground. In this spirit, Ribbentrop assured the Russian that there was no there was room for the two of us on the Baltic. Ribbentrop also dropped a gentle hint at a coming to an agreement with Russia on the fate of Poland. And the next move was up to Stalin.
1: I think the key word there was, if Stalin negotiates with Hitler in good fate hmm that's a that's a really bold statement considering the duplicitous hate um duplicitous history of soviet diplomatic uh maneuverings and you know going back on the words or in fact negotiating in bad faith (laughs) as we shall see
0: yeah i i hear i hear the words good faith and diplomacy and I, i i think of the oxymoron of military intelligence you know just uh we we both know that that's not a very accurate accurate statement. Good good faith diplomacy is almost uh, based on the grounds of well, is this beneficial for me, or can I do I uh, have better leverage somewhere else? But we'll, we'll we'll carry on here. In a sign of the convergence of thinking in Berlin and Moscow, Molotov called on Ambassador Schoenberg the next day, even before Schoenberg had learned of Ribbentrop's meeting with Astakov in Berlin. Schoenberg, a career diplomat, was less frank than Ribbentrop, promising simply that Soviet interests in Poland would be respected along with the integrity of the Baltic states. This time, it was Molotov's term to be blunt. Quote, At the mention of the Baltic states, Schoenberg reported to Ribbentrop, Molotov was interested in learning what states... Uh, we meant by the term whether Lithuania was one of them. Molotov and Ribbentrop were both mooting up to carve, or were mooting a carve of Eastern Europe. So, you know, n- we're not going to share the pie, ladies and gents. We're, we're just going to make sure we get what I want and you get nothing.
1: <laughs> yep, the scramble for Africa, more like the scramble for Eastern Europe and the Baltics.
0: Yeah. Still, even today, uh, these these kind of threats and these kind of fears are, are being reiterated now in the ongoing conflict uh, with Russia, Ukraine, and of course the extension of the West. That even as it looks like there's discussion about how to end the war, you know there are, there are still war hawks in both the American camp as well as various European states uh, warning of the ongoing threat that uh, you know parts of Eastern Europe will be carved up again, as if it's World War II. And, you know the fact that we're still discussing you know the these things in sort of this mytho poetic stance illustrates that sort of rhetorically and metaphysically we're still ruled by these these dead these dead men mm-hmm. and the, the the scars of that conflict. it's it's a
1: it's what you call you know a hauntology. and it's yeah. uh, something that unfortunately, if there is ever to be any progress in moving past this, it would require, I think, as Jarvin said, killing the ghosts of World War II.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I've I've always jokingly said that, like, I think Derrida got it wrong and Mark Fisher got it wrong. Like, we're not haunted by Marx. We're haunted by Hitler. You know, uh, liberal hauntology is just being haunted by, like, Stalin, uh, Hitler and, and FDR. Um, it really is what it is.
1: I mean, yeah, the future, I think I remember this once, it's like the future of liberal politics is both screaming at each other to see who's more like the Nazis.
0: I mean, even today we see that happen uh, in the the war in Ukraine and you just can't help but think to yourself, like, uh, we, we even see this now with um, the sort of like uh, leftist, anti-colonialist stance on Israel, you know, where they'll they'll just compare Benjamin Netanyahu to a Nazi and um, you know, for us, on face of things, the irony isn't lost that a "quote unquote" Jewish state is acting like Nazis. But um, you know, for us, the, the, in the in the West in general, I don't mean you and I specifically. I I'm just using the royal us. That you know, again, the, the the liberal hauntology for the Western ideologue is is World War II. It is Hitler. Like we are we are haunted by these ghosts. It, and
1: and you see this also in the US. They'll say like, oh, the Gazians are worse than hit than the Nazis. Look at how much they. Or this one was like, see, you know, two million German uh, civilians died in World War II. Well, they're the ones who elected Hitler to stay in power. So clearly there's some culpability on them. I'm just, you know, I was just completely, I had my off and I'm like, so this is what we're going with. The people are responsible for their leaders' actions and bear culpability. Gee, I hope this logic doesn't extend to... All states in a in a pact of belligerence because, I mean that's really unfortunately what it is Dem- warfare in the age of mass democracy is total. Like this is not something that you know in older times there was understood which parties are involved and a clear ending point of where this warfare extends to. This is not the case in today's you know mass democratic system of totalitarian. Mobile is you know totalitarian state of everyone being involved or having to swear fidelity to the dominant ideology although you know it's just like i said the, the liberal ontology of hitler and stuff just makes people go haywire and and totally masks the understanding of war and diplomacy prior to world war 1 and world war 2 though that era
0: yeah absolutely i mean really if we want an understanding of how schizophrenic mass democratic politics can get i mean i would i would study every war that was voted for or broke out between 1848 and uh, 1939 and if you want to if you want a good understanding of what that looks like study those conflicts um and how you've got the people riled up into a frenzy and once you're beholden to these sort of calls for blood uh cooler heads rarely prevailed I mean, this is why um, my profile picture, and this is why one of my greatest political influences is Clemens von Metternich, because he was anti-democratic and recognized the realism of, of, you know, being realistic in foreign affairs and policy and how to curtail that revolutionary spirit. And even though that the concert of Europe did not work out in his lifetime the way that he wanted it to, uh, much better than what came after uh, that sort of concert of Europe, that congress system died in 1913
1: and the okay. world has never been the same since no it has not
0: no unfortunately not um because the allied mission was unhurried and relatively low level it oh, I, oh we skipped a whole paragraph pardon me <clears throat> even so stalin was in no hurry with the german desperation for a deal now clear the russians could use paris and london to ratchet up pressure on berlin Although rumors were swirling around the Moscow embassy circuit, the evidence we have suggests the Chamberlain and Daladier governments had no idea how close the two dictators were to working out a deal. If they had, they surely would have shown more urgency in dispatching their joint diplomatic mission to Russia, headed by the British Admiral Reginald Drax and the French General Joseph Dumenk. Significantly, Drax and Dumenc did not fly to Moscow, instead traveling aboard an old steamer called the City of Exeter, which took six days to reach Russia. I, again, this reminds me of his talk about the lead up to World War I, where you know the the Kaiser sent a personal message to the front to the Russians rather than a telegraph, which may or may not have uh, prevented the war from carrying off the way it did. and uh, old technology, you know six six days on a steamer, uh, a phone call, a plane, a telegraph uh, would have sufficed. but uh, alas, here we are.
1: Technology, yeah. man.
0: yeah. Um, because the Allied mission was unhurried and relatively low level, it is usually dismissed by historians as unserious um, with its amateurness uh, confirming Stalin's contemptuous view of Western powers, giving him strategic, if deeply amoral, grounds for negotiating with Hitler. But this is not really fair to the Allies, and certainly not fair to the French, who took the mission more seriously than the British did. Unlike his British counterpart, Drax, Domek has been given full legal authority by the French government to negotiate a binding military agreement with Moscow. Prior to leaving Russia on August 5th, Dumenk was briefed by Prime Minister Dalidier, Foreign Minister Georges Etienne Bonnet, and the Chief of the General Staff, General Maurice Gamelin. What France needed in case war broke out with Germany over Poland, Gamelin informed Dumenk, was for the USSR to undertake nothing against Poland or Romania, but rather to aid these, our allies, or rather our future allies, if they request this aid, that is, by offering aerial support, fuel, and logistical support." In other words, France wanted Stalin to help Russia's neighbors instead of invading them. He, he, that he felt that he needed to emphasize this point, that Gamlin suspected Stalin was more likely to exploit a conflict by invading Poland and Romania than to aid them. Um,
1: very astute observations. Very.
0: Uh, this entire book in the early, you know, pre-war years, we've noted in previous chapters with other guests, that there are some very smart heads that unfortunately do not get listened to or do not prevail, and uh, it makes this conflict even more of a tragedy. Uh, the suspicions were brutally confirmed after Dvumenk and Drax arrived in Moscow on August 12th, when Stalin Molotov refused to even receive them. The task was left instead to Stalin's defense commissar, Marshal Klement Voroshilov, a political hack who had personally signed 185 death lists during the Great Terror. Voroshilov approached the talks in bad faith, but good humor. Abandoning any pretense about collective security, Voroshilov demanded over and over permission to send Soviet troops into northern and southern Poland and into Romania if the French and British declared war on Germany because Hitler invaded Poland, basically to invade the USSR's western neighbors. Dument tried to finesse this by predicting that Poland and Romania, if invaded by Germany, would readily assent if you came to their aid. At this, Voroshilov scoffed that, It is not at all clear that Poland and Romania will consent. When Drax conceded that Stalin would need permission from the Poles before invading Poland, Voroshilov said that he was very sorry to learn that the military missions of Britain and France did not pose these questions themselves and have not brought us a definitive answer. Dumeck was game enough to send an envoy to Warsaw on August 17th to ask if the Poles would permit Stalin to invade Poland if Germany attacked. The answer was no. The unfortunate fact, Dumeck reported to Gamlin, was that Stalin would not consider any military agreement until permission was granted for Soviet troops to enter Polish and Romanian territory. Exploiting his visitors' desperation, Voroshilov pumped them for information on Allied military dispositions. Drax and Dwomek dutifully shared with the Russian Marshal a detailed map of France's Maginot Line and the mobilization timelines of England's underwhelming expeditionary force to Europe. When Dvimek asked on August 14th for reciprocal intelligence about Soviet dispositions, Voroshilov refused unless the Allies told him whether Stalin would, quote, be allowed to send troops through the Valensky Corridor, by which he meant the diagonal strip of the Vilna or Vilnius district of northeastern Poland, although claimed by Lithuania and through Galicia into southern Poland and into Romania. Absent such guarantees, the discussion would remain of no immediate importance Giving the cause for Voroshilov to volunteer sensitive military information. So this is. Oh, go ahead. Yeah,
1: I like the idea of you negotiate in bad faith but have good humor about it. (laughs) It's just that 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 describes so much of what's going on. You know, they know. You know, the British and French are trying to they're trying to court Stalin first before Hitler is. And on you know, as you see, the problem with this is that they really don't have much to bargain with, considering. You know the the claims of territory over both Eastern European countries and the baltics the um the the strategic position they found themselves in was just one in which they really didn't have much to offer to Stalin at this point. and you know we can see that you know Stalin's trying to maneuver he he's kind of playing both of these you know both the Germans and the British French kind of against each other because he's because he, he, he knows that you know the conflict is coming, but I want to I want to be the maneuvering to make it look like that I wasn't the one calling the shots. I'm you know it's kind of like that misdirection of like you know when the I think Bismarck sent you know a fake sort of a edited letter in which you know the Emperor Napoleon the third he was like insulted, which caused you know them the French decide to take a belligerence against. It was the north german confederation which was the prussian led which caused the war and in the end you know the german empire was born and the french were left holding the bag with a very humiliating surrender this is kind of like where i that's kind of the historical comparison i'm i'm sort of drawing on
0: no oh, it's a good comparison I, what what I, I i'm noticing here is the the valensky corridor all the way down into Galicia, southern Poland, and into Romania. Um, and I'm going to just scroll back up real quick to that map, because I think this is sort of an important thing to consider. Um, you know, we, we want that. Um, so we have all, Galicia all the way down to Romania. And we're noticing this line here, um, you know, uh, this straight sort of cut line. Of course, they don't have Konigsberg yet. This is not yet Kaliningrad. That's a post-war deal. But you're noticing, let's let's go into Poland. Let's talk about a partition. But we also want to go into Galicia. So presuming we're, we want to keep, uh, you know, leave or Lao, and we're going to cut all down into Romania. Well, if we cut down all the way further into Romania, geographically speaking, where do we get to? Well, we get to the territory that would be uh, known today as Transnistria and we get access to an entirety of the Black Sea and that what is the Ukrainian territory would be Soviet territory and we're noticing this World War II geographic through line of what might be the border of Russian or Soviet sphere of influence and even today you know we, we talk about the um, you know this little gap between uh, Russian Kaliningrad and Poland and then the, the Russian territory. And, you know, we still want that through line from Kaliningrad, a very important Soviet, one of the most, you know, defended cities on Earth, uh, of course, because you access to the Baltic Sea, and then you want to cut that down all the way to Transnistria. And you wonder, when we look, when we talk about the war, and we talk about what's happening in Ukraine, well, what would be the Russia's territorial goals? Well, if you want, you don't want a Ukrainian rump state to have Black Sea access. You want that to be a rump state entirety with no trade or no economic growth without going through you guys. So, uh, again, I'm seeing World War II levels of um, this line that, that often has been pointed out by my friend Semiagog on territorial uh, issues for the Russians and the Soviets.
1: Very smart fellow and very, um uh, will always recommend tuning into a stream of his.
0: Yeah. Um, but let's continue on where we left off. Um, Drax and Dumenk. Uh Here we go. This is where we left off. Uh, so, yeah. Um, so uninterested were the Russians in what Drax and Dumenk were offering as early as August 14th on the second day of talks with the British and the French. Molotov issued instructions for his diplomats to open talks with the Germans on not only the pending economic negotiations, but also the Polish question. Significantly, he insisted that these talks take place in Moscow. Molotov's proposal to open political talks shows that Stalin was just as interested in a deal with Hitler, even if the latter was more pressed for time by his military timetable. At 8 p.m. on August 15th, Ambassador Schoenberg called on Moscow. Uh, His instructions from Berlin were blunt and broad. In addition to what Ribbentrop had told the Russians earlier about German willingness to settle questions pertaining to the Baltic Sea, Baltic area, and Poland, Ribbentrop added the hint of an agreement on Romania under the heading of Southeastern Questions, etc., and asked Molotov to request an audience with Stalin for the German foreign minister. To all this, Molotov assented while adding a twist. With an eye on the influence Germany might be able to exert on Japan, whose forces were locked in a battle with Zhukov a Kalkin Gol, Molotov asked where things stood with the idea of the Soviet Union concluding a non-aggression pact with Japan. Was the German government sympathetically inclined towards the idea? Schollenberg recorded these remarks verbatim to Ribbentrop in Berlin. Hitler, of course, was delighted. On August 16th, Ribbentrop wired Schellenberg that Germany is ready to conclude a non-aggression pact with the Soviet Union and, if the Soviet government desires, one which would be irrevocable for a term of 25 years. Ribbentrop promised to settle Baltic questions to Stalin's satisfaction and to exercise influence for an improvement of Russian-Japanese relations. He was ready to come by plane to Moscow any time after Friday, August 18th, to deal on the basis of full power from the Fuhrer, with the entire complex of german russian questions and if the occasion arises to sign the appropriate treaties. So I mean he's got full legal authority from mustache man himself to make this happen.
1: Yes, and uh, for those keeping so 25 year non aggression would mean that any formal hostilities to break out if if let's assume that like this worked out diplomatically could you imagine the time period where you have a you have the USSR and the third reich Existing and about to go into combat in the year of 1964, which you know, again, it's one of those thing that you know you don't realize because, like I said, you know, this could be broken at any time because the non-aggression is is more or less of like, listen, we're not friends with each other, but let's hold off the conflict until we figure out our own questions, as you probably the Polish question, the southeastern question, these you know territorial ambitions that both states had. And if, you know what what they're doing is they're buying time they're just trying to assert the situation you know both of these these powers are heading for a war but they want to sort out their their houses and know where the other party stands on these issues
0: yeah this is the uh the bargaining model of war so to speak listen we're not at war yet but I need to put my feelers out to know what 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 leverage I have and what you're willing to put on the table and this is where you get sort of those rational choice theorists on conflict. Mm-hmm. Uh, Stalin only needed Hitler's word to move forward. After receiving a preliminary German draft on August 18th for a non-aggression pact lasting 25 years, Molotov prepared a counter draft on August 19th that the sign of Stalin's strategic restlessness shortened the duration to five years. Hinting at a possible Soviet designs on neighboring countries, Molotov added a clause stipulating that Germany and the Soviet Union must refrain from supporting any third country pressed into hostilities with either power. Molotov concluded his counter draft by stipulating that the non-aggression treaty must be made conditional on the signing of a special protocol covering the points in which high contracting parties are interested in the field of foreign policy. Uh, very vague. Very vague. Let's see what the footnote says here. Uh to Ribbentrop, August 18, 1939, reporting. Oh, so just the what's the facts of the matter. I would have yep. loved to know what that special protocol would have been. Maybe we'll we'll get more into it in this chapter, but really does say, listen, you know, uh you can't use a proxy against us. <laughs> <Huh>. <laughs> well, yes. I heard that before. We're,
1: yes, it's almost as if there is a war going on with a between Russia and And Ukraine, in which one of them is being used as a proxy to weaken one other's military, as well as, you know, hurt them economically, and to push them out of any sort of relevance within the greater European uh, sphere of influence and governance.
0: Yeah. Uh, Molotov's August 19th draft lies a critical clue into Stalin's thinking, whereas Hitler with a Polish war on the horizon wanted a s- as simple a sweeping on aggression pact as possible, Stalin wanted to keep his foreign policy options open by shortening the pact's duration by a factor of five, while also demanding a heavy price up front. Far from wishing to forestall a European war between Germany and Western powers, Stalin's aim was to ensure that it would break out. According to a controversial transcript of Stalin's remarks on this day, first published in translation in 1939 and later discovered in the Russian archives, the Votst told Molotov that if he cut a deal with England and France, Germany will back off and seek a modus vivendi with the Western powers. By contrast, if Molotov accepted Germany's proposal and concluded a non-aggression pact with her, Stalin predicted that Germany will certainly attack Poland and the intervention of England and France is then unavoidable. From the communist perspective in the latter scenario, a bloody war in which capitalist power blocs sought to destroy each other was far better than peace. It was, Stalin explained, in the interest of the Soviet Union and the land of toilers that if war breaks out between the Reich and the capitalist Anglo-French bloc uh, was in their benefit. The only danger was that one bloc might defeat the other two quickly, before they had bled each other sufficiently. Everything should be done, Stalin continued, so that the war drags out as long as possible with the goal of weakening both sides. Viewing the Western capitalist powers, led by an arch-imperialist Britain, as the stronger side, Stalin argued that the task of Soviet foreign policy for now consists in helping Germany, that is, signing a pact with Berlin. With the Japanese conflict in the Far East still unsettled, the Soviet Union should strive to stay out of the European war as long as possible while being able to hope for our own timely entrance into the war. This very, was, yeah. It's this, yeah.
1: This very, what I said is that Stalin is essentially getting the two people who could be his greatest competitors within the European uh, sphere influence to fight each other and hopefully wink can. But as we see in history, unfortunately, they basically, one power does kind of defeat the other too quickly and just proceeds to either make alliances or steamroll other countries that stand up to it. So, and I should also mention, you know, in accepting this, this is something I remember reading in the translations of Ernest Nolte's European Civil War, for which um, uh, he will criticize Hitler and as well as the others for like accepting these terms of the non-aggression because it allowed... It was a, you know, it was somewhat unpopular, not the greatest thing for even within his own high command and German diplomatic corps, because they were always saying, you know, you can't really trust Stalin. He, you know, or the Soviets. You know, they have a history of lying through their teeth and doing something completely something completely different clear down the line. And I, you know, we're seeing, you know, the way McMeekin is framing Stalin, like Stalin is just, you know, he's honestly. He's not goofy or an independent actor. He's really calling the shots, and he's he's establishing a, a situation to make it look like you know Hitler's the one really w- aiming for war when it's shown that Stalin had the same, if not greater, ambitions for territorial expansion.
0: Yeah, I mean, like the the one thing out of this book is is that I, a lot of Western historiography and even what I learned in my you know European studies of. Uh, what led to the Russian Revolution and uh, Soviet foreign policy was is that it was, you know, uh, schizophrenic because, you know, communists were never coherent. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm reading this and I'm reading translations of Stalin uh, and other Soviet archives. And I'm like, no, there's a very realist foreign policy here that serves their interest. And furthermore, this text has been, I think, very instrumental in highlighting that you know, if you want to understand what like a sovereign looks like in a study Mm -hmm. of sovereignty, you can hate communism, but you can look at what Stalin is doing and you can understand this guy is sovereign. This guy is the one really running the shots here. You know, this isn't, you know, managerial, you know, uh, managerialism with sort of like democratic means. Like there is, there is a, there is a top, there is a a head to the snake and the the head to that snake is is Joseph Stalin.
1: Right. And I think you mentioned, uh, you know, we live in an age and era where like, The sovereign is hidden you really don't know who's who's in charge or who's making the decision it's it's usually hidden way behind layers and layers of managers of bureaucrats thing and it you know it's led to a modern situation where we're in a tyranny of like nobody being in charge or like very leaderless or very or hidden leaders or it just you know even the open exercise of saying yes i'm the one who authorized this or i'm the one taking charge it's seen as an inherently bad thing in today's like views of politics. but for most of human history, that was appreciated because it lets you know, all right, well, if this thing goes well, we know who to praise, and if it doesn't go well, we know who to who run out of town or who to, you know who to really get, you know, who, who bears the blame and responsibility for these.
0: Uh, absolutely. Um, with Mos- oh, with Molotov having been given the green light for Ribbentrop to come to Moscow, all that remained was to work out the timing. True to Molotov's formula, a Soviet-German economic agreement was inked first at 2 a.m. Sunday, August 20th, under which the Soviets would supply Hitler with at least 240 million Reichsmarks worth of raw materials over the next two years, mostly oil, cotton, manganese, and rubber in exchange for the equivalent value in German manufacturers and technology transfer. This sum was a mere baseline. The goal was to ramp up bilateral trade to 1 billion Reichsmarks per year. Sunday afternoon, Ribbentrop uh, had been received in Moscow either on Tuesday or the following day. In a wire to the Chancellor of the German Reich, sent Monday evening, Stalin had welcomed the ascent of the German government to the conclusion of a non-aggression pact and, received, and agreed to receive Ribbentrop on Wednesday, August 23rd. The scene at Moscow's Kondaika Aerodrome that day was striking. Along the runway, swastikas fluttered along the ubiquitous hammer and sickle banners of the Soviet Union. The swastikas had been requisitioned, as Roger Morehouse notes in The Devil's Alliance, from local film studios, where they had been recently used for (laughs) anti-Nazi propaganda films.
1: (laughs) Never let a good prop go to waste, I suppose. Absolutely.
0: Never let a good prop go to waste. Uh, no less jarring was the musical accompaniment of with the Soviet military band serenading Ribbentrop with Deutschland über alles before switching over to the Internationale, the socialist
1: anthem. <laughs> this is just—it's like you just said earlier, like you know the the imperial anthem. God, of Russia. Yeah, God,
0: God save the Czar versus the Marseille <laughs> Um, you know. Uh, look at how the Gestapo officers are shaking hands to their counterparts of the NKVD, and how they were all smiling at each other. They're obviously delighted and finally able to collaborate. But watch out! This will be disastrous, especially when they start exchanging files.
1: <laughs> it's uh, older, like they may be smiling, but that doesn't mean they're happy to see each other.
0: All right. Well, we got we got a few pages here, and we can we can wrap up this uh, this whole section. So we're we're doing pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Uh, the Russians spared no expense at laying out a welcome mat for uh, for Ribbentrop. The greatest honor was the presence of Stalin, who almost never received foreign visitors. And a revealing contrast with the feeble show put on for the British and French envoys, still cooling their heels up on the road, Soviet-German talks began immediately after the Germans arrived at the highest level, with Stalin and Molotov receiving Scholenberg and Ribbentrop. Hitler, camped out by the phone in Birch's Garden, planning to move against Poland within days, needed a deal as soon as possible. Stalin, knowing the leverage was his, was inclined to give it to Hitler for a price.
1: I I like the footnote on, I have the physical book in front of me. (laughs) It says, in the last rounds of negotiations between Drax Dumanc and Voroshilov had concluded at midnight on Tuesday, August 22nd. Rubentov en route to Moscow. That morning, Stalin toured Orashilov to tell the French and British visitors he had gone duck hunting. Well, isn't that a good euphemism? Because we'll see in the next week. They certainly were out duck hunting.
0: Yeah. Um... Booze flowed, free, flowed freely as the four men worked out the details of their pact. Molotov drank to Ribbentrop's health. Ribbentrop to Stalin's, and Stalin proposed to toast to Hitler, assuring his guests, I know how much the German people's loves its Führer. And a revealing aside, Molotov traced the diplomatic revolution of the present moment back to Stalin's chestnuts speech to the 18th party Congress in March, a speech that he realized had been well understood in Germany. Everyone agreed heartily with Stalin's cynical jibe that the anti comintern pact frightened principally the city of London and the small British merchants. Um, interesting. I wonder if that is a reference to um, Jewish individuals there. Uh, Ribbentrop chimed in that Stalin will yet join the anti comintern pact. As the conclusion of the non-aggression pact, the only disagreement was over the duration, with Ribbentrop angling for a symbolic number like 100 years while Stalin whittling it down to a more plausible 10. <laughs> Ah, uh,
1: yes, the negotiator.
0: Yeah. <laughs> may, may he live for a thousand years, and Stalin's like, let's let's give it ten years, give it ten years. <laughs> <laughs> As for the fate of Poland and Eastern Europe, there was surprisingly little friction. Molotov and Stalin raised no objection when Ribbentrop informed the ominously that the German people would no longer put up with Polish provocation. All the Russians wanted was their fair share of the territory, quote, in the event of a territorial and political rearrangement of the areas belonging to the Polish state, end quote. With the dividing line bounded approximately by the line of the rivers Nara, Vistula, and San. Far from a token token sliver of Poland, the Soviet zone was larger than the German one, although the share of Poland's population was smaller. The Baltic area was divided in the pact's secret protocols into spheres of influence, a sign of Stalin's superior leverage. The Soviet sphere included all of Finland, Estonia, Latvia, and the German one only had Lithuania. Stalin and Molotov declared a Soviet interest in Bessarabia. The Führer, accepts. Ribbentrop, declared that the eastern part of Poland and Bessarabia, as well as Finland, Estonia, and Latvia, up to the River Dina with the fall of the Soviet sphere of influence. There was some haggling over the Soviet-German frontier in the Baltic. Stalin insisted that he needed Labau and um, Vindau, or Vince Bliss. Hitler, by telephone from Birch's Garden, agreed. The only discord came when Ribbentrop proposed a flowery expression of Nazi-Soviet friendship. Do you think we should take a little more account of public opinion in both of our countries? Stalin asked, reminding Ribbentrop that for many years now, we have been pouring buckets of shit over each other's heads. <laughs> <laughs> now that is what I call shit posting. That's that's absolutely right. Um, so true. Uh, we have been, you know, buckets of shit. That's fantastic. Uh We need need more bluntness in foreign policy, please. Uh, In this way, the destinies of millions of people from the Arctic Ocean to the Danube Delta were settled by four tipsy men in the Kremlin. Seldom has a non-aggression pact been more transparent um, in furthering armed aggression. The territorial protocols of the Moscow Pact signed by Molotov and Ribbentrop on August 23rd, 1939, to be sure, remained secret. But the non-aggression clauses were published proudly in Pravada the next morning and trumpeted aloud in Berlin, suggesting that Poland was in serious danger. Although only from German attack, the idea that Stalin might also invade was scarcely suspected, least of all in Warsaw. While Hitler kept Britain and France occupied after they declared war on Germany and vice versa, the Soviet Union could expand its borders westward at small risk of outside intervention while enjoying immense economic leverage over the Germans. Small wonder that Stalin told Zhukov that he had twisted Hitler around his finger. It was true that the price of Stalin's strategic coup was an unsightly agreement with Hitler, which Molotov was now enjoined to justify. In a speech before the Supreme Soviet on August 31, 1939, laying down the Comintern line, Molotov blamed the European war about to break out on the British, who had tried, but mercifully failed, to embroil Germany and Soviet Russia in war in order to kill two birds with one stone. Instead, the Soviets had turned the table on the Western imperialist powers with their peaceful non-aggression pact, and anyone who criticized this pact Molotov instructed communists all over the world to say was a more warmonger trying to bring about a global bloodbath. Despite the degree of difficulty involved in disassembling like this, the benefits of the Moscow Pact for Communism were, were obvious. The capitalist world would soon be embroiled in a terrible war, and the Soviet Union would be able to spread its territory, territory substantially westward against seemingly helpless foes. All Stalin needed to do was to ensure that Germany, nor its opponents, secured a decisive advantage. Once the two sides had exhausted themselves in a death struggle, the past would be clear for the armies of communism to march in and seize the capitalist world by the throat. And that's the end of the chapter or this section of chapter two on the Molotov-Ribbentrop pact. Um, Any final thoughts, uh, Mr. Lantern? Well,
1: there's a lot to tackle. And, you know, I should mention that this pact, the Molotov-Ribbentrop, was actually kept very secret. And for nearly 50 years, actually, only the most, uh, you know, scrupulous of historians, you know, who were labeled, you know, as untrustworthy, were able to kind of, parse, you know, and read between the lines of what was going on behind the scenes to say, listen, you know, the Soviet Union was was gearing up for its expansion and they wanted to maneuver the Germans and the British and French against each other so that if they would get into a protracted conflict over the territory in Poland, yeah, Stalin could easily mobilize his forces to not only take over you know, Finland, the Baltics, as, as well as more of Eastern Europe, but even eventually start marching on the way. Because, like I said, a war was coming at this point. It was inevitable, and neither side was able to head it off. But it was a question of who will strike first? Who, you know, it's the old Soviet question, you know, you know who will overtake whom? That really guides much, much of the foreign policy that it does. You know, we see... And just to recap, like I said, you know, this didn't become public. The Molotov ribbentrop Pact did not become, like, more widely until 1989 when it was revealed, like, through the Glasnost programs. And, you know, the reaction to, like, you know, the Baltics who were, like, who became Soviet republics after the conclusion of World War II was just, you know, enormous fury, fury and drived up the calls for leaving because, you know, when you've been given a fake history and the wrong version— of of what went down you have a you know a mass collective call for just crazy times and events and i think the final part is that we see clearly like this is you know the whole framing is that stalin is just as much of an ambitious warmonger as hitler was and i guess even more but he was also much smarter And by accepting this treaty, you know, when Germany would eventually attack and invade Poland, they would find themselves on the back foot and Stalin could just easily, you know, as we'll see in in further chapters, they could easily just take out the Polish as, you know, Britain and France are getting ready to fight Germany. And it's in the footnote of the chapter, even the Polish minister, unaware of this non-aggression pact, actually petitioned for Soviet assistance when Germany first attacked on September 1st.
0: Yeah. And, and I mean, really, it's an important to consider, uh, even with re- even what we might call revisionist historians. I mean, like you, you look at Nolte, the European Civil War, like, you know, that's what Stalin wanted. Stalin wanted the European powers to, to fight one another. And as, as we saw with the end of World War II, you had millions of Red Army troops. I mean, yes, dead, but also millions more you know, now occupying these exhausted, bombed out, war-torn countries. And, um, you know, that that description is very apt in looking at, you know, all of the lines and rhetoric that we saw from the Comintern uh, and other, you know, Soviet diplomats that like, yeah, let these imperialists and capitalists kill each other. We will just swarm them with millions afterwards. And, I mean, that's what we saw. Um, And it really does illustrate, I think, that the the unabashed realism and sort of, you know, cloak and dagger style of foreign policy from the Soviets that really did illustrate, like, we will try and hold back as much as possible. We will asymmetrically take advantage of the Americans and their money and their industry. And we will use that leverage also over the Germans and we will let you all just kill each other. And here we are. And so we're now setting up for the opening hours and days of the second world war. Um, but as we wrap up here, uh, Mr. Lantern, where can people find your work and what do you do?
1: Well, I'm glad you say um, I I am I'm on Twitter with the same handle you see on the screen. I've been writing up substack essays, you know, of random topics from historical events to, oh, this was my favorite movie or, oh, this was my this video game was important to me or commentary on day events. I've gotten around these parts for many years. Spoken with people of all ages, but I just figured I'm more or less a amateur writer, so to speak, of, of history, of maybe modern day politics, of various other topics. And I do this as a hobby because I always enjoy a good conversation and interacting with many of the very bright and obscure minds on this side of the internet.
0: Well, I'll have your Substack and your Twitter linked down below in the description. This will still be out, um, available for patrons, subscri- uh, Substack subscribers, and Subscribestar supporters, as well as channel members, uh, out early. and will premiere um, probably sometime in the coming weeks very soon. Um, But again, Mr. Lantern, thank you so much for coming on and talking with me through this this section this morning and to our audience. uh, The series will continue on until we finish the Mm -hmm. book. And if there's anyone that you want me to talk to, by all means, let me know in the comments. You can email me with my YouTube channel, email or DM me on Twitter. Um, Your support and, you know, seeing this early is very important to understand our history in order for us to look at the world with much clearer and sober eyes in 2023 and in the future. Thank you so much. Take care and God bless.